All right, let's get started. I will make my appeal that if you come five or ten minutes early, you can visit with one another, you can check your homework, and then we can have our full class time. So that would be excellent if you guys could get here a little bit early. This think instead of arriving at 8:30, let's get there at 8:20, and then that'll give us time to enjoy every aspect without feeling rushed. All right, so I handed back your quizzes, and most of you did pretty well on the hermeneutics quiz. A number of you looked like you hadn't studied for the philosopher quiz, and so I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do with that. Whether I'm going to give you a chance for a do-over on the philosopher's quiz, or whether we'll just drop the worst quiz from this semester out of your final grade. Um, Keep in mind that the final exam is coming up at the end of the semester, so you'll want to know the philosophers uh, at least for the final exam. So keep those and make sure you can use those for for study. And I won't make it too hard. I won't change things up and describe something very different about the philosopher. Pretty much the way they're described on the quizzes is the way they're going to be on the final exam. Just to try to help out as much as I can with some things that are. New and names that are new, and get those concepts down. All right. So then,、uh, let me go ahead and give you the assignment for the upcoming week, so we make sure we don't run out of time at the end for that. You're gonna start working on your speeches if you haven't already, and hopefully each one of you signed up with your topic for your second round of speech this morning, which was your assignment over the last two weeks. So you're gonna want to start doing your research, get your outline. And create your speech. Now you don't have to write out your speech this time like you did for the first one. You don't have to have a you know 500 or whatever word it was、uh, essay. You can go straight from outline to speech, and I think that is how speeches are normally prepared. And when it's an extemporaneous speech, so we're going to do that, and that will cut out one step. Also. Then this week I want you to read Hermeneutics chapter four and do the exam. The exam is not really an exam, but I think that's what it's called, the examination book. And it's more of like a review quiz. And we're going to be using those review quizzes in class. We're going to do discussion around those answers, checking those in small groups. We might not get to that today, but next week we'll probably catch up on all of the hermeneutics、uh, chapters that you have been reading that we haven't. Yet talked about much in class. Today, I want to focus on the final chapters of How Should We Then Live. We've gotten through the whole book now. We've watched all the videos, and so we're going to do some small group time on that today, where we're going to discuss your answers to the study guide questions in chapters eight, nine, and ten of the video. So that's that's what's going to happen today, and that's your assignment for February tenth. So, start writing your speeches. We're gonna begin giving speeches on February seventeenth. So you've got two weeks to get your speeches ready, and then we're going to read Hermeneutics chapter four and bring your answers to the quiz next time for discussion in class. Any questions about the homework or where we're going? Well, I'll send out the email and hopefully that'll make everything clear. I want to start off this morning with a great quote. I showed it to 
uh, people that have been around my teaching before, but a lot of you this is going to be new for. Michael Faraday is a great figure in the history of science. He was one of the key figures in uh, discovering the link between electricity and magnetism. And before Faraday's time, before his discoveries, people thought of electricity and magnetism as, as different things. But what Faraday uncovered and was able to explain was how magnetism is just one aspect, it's a manifestation of uh, electrical currents. And so Michael Faraday, he was a, a Christian, and he said, I will simply express my strong belief, okay, strong belief here, that the point of self-education which consists in teaching the mind to resist its desires and inclination until they are proved to be right, is the most important of all. Not only in things of natural philosophy, but in every department of life. The natural philosophy is what they used to call science uh, back in Faraday's day. That was an aspect of philosophy. And natural philosophy is the knowledge, the study of nature. And Michael Faraday, having focused his attention on natural philosophy, was able to express his strong belief that the most important thing you can do, not only in science, but in any area of life, is to make sure that you don't allow your personal biases to lead you to conclusions, but that instead you allow the evidence to lead you to the conclusions. And so you have to resist your natural desires and inclinations until they're proved to be right. And that is a challenge. That's hard for all of us to do that. So just wanted to remind you of some of the great roots that we have in our Western civilization because of the Christian and Protestant basis of our progress. And to recognize that as we lose the worldview of Michael Faraday, we're also going to see natural philosophy, which is known as science, become the sociological science that is uh, being seen more and more in places of power and authority today. Sociological science is not so much concerned about proving something to be right as it is in directing the narrative. That there's a certain way that we want society to go and so we rally the science that you know, we can present that is going to direct society in the direction that we think it should go. And so this is very contrary to what Michael Faraday had as his guiding principles in being a scientist. And you see that here in the closing chapters of Schaefer's book. That Schaefer, writing about the time that I was born, recognized that ideas have consequences. And that society, having adopted certain ideas, a certain worldview, was going to necessarily then go in a certain direction. And over the course of my lifetime, we have seen society go in that direction. I really enjoyed reading the final chapters in Schaefer's book because it was almost like he was writing today about what's happened in the last five years. As we've, we've seen uh, a lot of rise, and now it's always been there, but it's become a lot more obvious. It's become a lot more bold. The rise of the authoritarian elite who manipulate the people. And this is something that you can see in uh, all areas of Western civilization, Western society. And Schaefer did a great job of bringing out how that was going to happen, and we've seen that play out. Now, 
Let's talk about a few of the things that he, he mentioned in his final chapter. I'm uh, going to do a little lecture here on how should we then live before we break up into small groups. That uh, He talked about how this new authoritarian elite is not going to be a military dictatorship like what we saw in the 20th century in the rise of the communism and the socialism, the, the National Socialist Party in Germany. That that they, you know, just ruled with that authoritarian power through their military might and through executions like we had even going back to the French Revolution with the reign of terror. And Francis Schaeffer, he was wise enough to see that's not how it's going to play out in the free countries of Western society, but instead of a military dominance over the people, there's going to be a manipulation of the people and that a big part of that manipulation was going to be done through media and television. A number of years ago, there was a Christian music group called Pray for Rain. Anybody listen to Pray for Rain? PFR? No? Look them up. They're a good group. Um, and Pray for Rain had a song about the media and a line there that says, The media mediates between the masses and the myth it creates. So the media creates a myth, and then it mediates that myth to the masses. This is the manipulation of the elite. So an elite class gains control over a large enough segment of the media. You can't control everything in the media, but you can control the major media uh, by ownership, purchasing it. You know, most media is owned by just a, a, a small number of very rich people, very powerful people. And so they have the story that they want, they have the direction they want society to go, and the media, therefore, will then frame all of the stories and publish the stories that are going to help manipulate people into going in that direction, believing those things that are going to direct them the way that the elites want people to think and perceive the world. So I really appreciated in the Francis Schaeffer video how he was able to demonstrate that so powerfully by staging that riot in the city where you've got the protesters and you know the first time they filmed it they filmed it from a certain angle and then they uh, edited it in a certain way and then they had the commentator the newsman describing the event and it was you know the the peaceful demonstration and the uh, police officers were coming in and being unnecessarily brutal and all of that and then the second time, they did the exact same actions. The actors played it out exactly the same, but they filmed it from different angles, they edited it different, and then the news commentator uh, described it differently. And, and this time, uh, rather than a peaceful protest that was cracked down on by a, a cruel uh, police force, it was outrageous rioting, and that uh, the police were defending the community against these anarchists. And so however the, the media wants to frame it, that's the story that comes across. And they're, they're two opposite stories, but it's the same action. And so that's something to keep in mind, that the, the media is able to control the narrative by how they edit, how they film, uh, how they want to tell the story. And so keep your eye out for that. And it's something that has been in the news a lot in the last few years, where you'll have certain protesters who are described as mostly peaceful protesters, and then you'll have other protesters who are described as, you know, the threat to democracy and, and the, you know, worse than terrorists. 
And uh, if you just look at the pictures, it's like, well, this group seems a lot worse than this group, but the narrative that goes along with it is totally different. What were you going to say? Well, just made me think of what Rush Limbaugh used to say. Oh. I didn't say one time, he said, never forget, the news, the media is a product. Yes. It's packaged and delivered as somebody wishes. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So... Uh, when you're seeing media, recognize that you're seeing one person or one group's uh, desire to how they want to portray it. You're not seeing the whole picture. And there's a great proverb about that in the Bible. where It says, the first to present his case seems just until another comes and cross-examines. So always keep that principle in mind, that you can't just trust the, the first impression that you get or the first account that you get from a certain story or uh, conflict, but instead you have to look at both sides. I remember years ago I was here, uh, well, not even just recently, I'll use the more recent example. Uh, recently I was here at Awana on Wednesday nights, and uh, one of the kids was, was talking about the war in Ukraine. And, you know, was talking about how evil and bad Russia is and how good and holy Ukraine is. And, and I said, well, that's one side of the story. That's one way of looking at it, and you've been told that, but do you really know? Uh, have you been to Ukraine? Have you been to Russia? Do you understand the situation on the ground? Or are you just listening to what you know, one side has told you? And so you want to be careful not to jump to conclusions, like, like what we just said with Faraday, remember? Uh, if you want to be involved with self-education, then the most important principle is to resist your mind's desires and inclinations until they are proved to be right. But don't jump to conclusions. Don't say, well, you know, I saw that uh, that police officer was kneeling on the guy's neck and then he died. And, and so, you know, the way that it looked to me, it looked like he, he murdered that guy. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But were you there? Do you know? Have you been a police officer? Uh, do you have a, an understanding of police tactics? No. And so you've got to find more information before you jump to conclusions and don't think you know what you don't know recognize there's a lot that you don't know. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that incident that I'm referring to was, was not badly handled, and I don't, I, I'm not going to jump to conclusions one way or the other. That's why we have courts, that's why we have police officers who can give testimony, that's why we don't just look at what the news says about something and make up our mind, but instead, we allow the process of justice to be carried out, and Hopefully, there's still enough wisdom in our society that judges and courts and lawyers and all of that can still function and find some measure of justice outside of what is created by the media. Okay, so, uh, the authoritarian elite want to manipulate, and one of their most powerful tools for manipulating the masses is the media. Now, interestingly, as we talk about the authoritarian elite, uh, the manipulative authoritarian elite, just recently, uh, there's a... a a world meeting of elites from all the different countries around the world uh, at Davos. And you may have heard of the World Economic Forum. So the World Economic Forum meets every year in Davos over in Switzerland, I think. Uh, and so uh, Klaus Schwab is one of the guys who heads up the World Economic Forum and he pulls together you know, prime ministers and uh, government officials and, and everybody that is kind of wanting to move society in a certain progressive direction, and they get together and strategize and plan and talk about how they can bring the, the, about the society, global society, that they want to create. 
And so this is one example of the authoritarian elite uh, controlling and trying to direct society in the way that they want. All right? Um, there's also a very insightful comment that I want to point out for you by Francis Schaeffer in the chapter and in the video, where he said, right and left are going to be just two roads leading to the same end. So when it comes to the rise of an authoritarian elite, it doesn't really matter whether it's uh, driven by the right or driven by the left. Both have the same goal of centralizing power and creating a system of control over the people. Now, here in America, the central authority is, is mostly left. It's mostly the progressive movement that has centralized authority in Washington, D.C. But if you go over to Russia, it's mostly the right that has centralized authority uh, there in the Kremlin. And so, whether it's the right in Russia or whether it's the left in America, they're both moving towards greater centralized control, greater centralized authority. And this is where the conflict between East and West is then going to arise, between the central authority of places like China and Russia versus the centralized authority of places like America and Europe. And then you have this conflict to say, well, whose vision of you know, the, the future of the globe is going to be brought to pass as the authoritarian elites from different sides are going to battle that out. But also, within our own nation, you've seen in the last 40 years that whether they are called the Republican Party or whether they are called the Democrat Party, they both work together as kind of a uniparty to centralize authority uh, in Washington. And so this is something that has been true of both the left and the right over uh, the course of our lifetime, and that was something that Francis Schaeffer uh, wisely pointed out because he recognizes that this is a philosophical thing. It's ideas have consequences. And that when the Christian base is left, then right and left are really just two roads leading to the same end. And smart people on YouTube are, are just finally figuring this out. Uh, smart people on the you know media on the right uh, who are not uh, part of the uniparty, but who are really wanting to preserve individual liberty and decentralized authority, they're just figuring this out. That, oh, you know, we thought the Republicans were working to, you know, recover liberty and, and decentralized authority. We find out for all these years, actually, no. That's just what they told us while they did everything to centralize authority. So a lot of great insight here. And uh, a lot of these ideas that Schaefer has, I think, uh, some of them at least, might have come from the book Ideas Have Consequences, which is part of the recommended reading at the end of the study guide for chapter 10. And just recently I've been listening to a book review of Ideas Have Consequences, and so I was interested to see it on the, the recommended reading list, uh, Francis Schaeffer's chapter 10. Um, so, uh, interesting how people could look ahead based upon philosophy and ideas and predict where society was going to move. So the underlying principle here that is causing the centralization of power among an authoritarian elite who manipulate the people is that without the Christian worldview, and what I mean by Christian worldview is I, I don't just mean um, you believe in God and you believe that there is such a thing as moral absolutes, 
But even beyond that, but be, be, a, a Christian worldview is those who are born again through faith in Jesus Christ and actually know God and have their sins forgiven and restored to God that believe the gospel, that gospel-centered, Christ-centered worldview. Without that, that people cannot function with the freedoms that have arisen from that. And why do I point that out? Well, it's if you look back at the Catholic Church, it was a centralized authority. It was centralized control and power, and it still is. But then the Reformation came along and decentralized the authority, decentralized it, and preached the gospel to the people and changed the hearts of the people and gave them a personal relationship with God where you no longer have to go through the hierarchy, but instead you have that direct access to God. That's a restoration of the human heart to God. And either you have the restoration of the human heart towards God or you have the chaos of sin. And the only way to control the chaos of sin apart from God's rule in the heart through faith in Christ is through an authoritarian system of government. If you've got a Bible with you or if you'd like to use your phone, uh, look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. A very key chapter for understanding human government and the necessary evil that human government is when people are not able to govern themselves underneath God. We either self-govern or we must be ruled over. Those are the options. People are either able to govern themselves underneath God, or they need someone to rule over them. When society gets rid of God, and the personal relationship with God, well then all that's left is somebody to rule over you, an authoritarian elite to rule over the people. This is demonstrated, I think, quite powerfully in the, the history of the Old Testament. And it comes to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, where are we in the story of redemption in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Well, Samuel is the last of the prophets. I mean, the last of the judges. So, the period of judges comes right before 1 and 2 Samuel. Samuel is a judge over Israel. He's a decentralized authority figure, but he is the most prominent of the decentralized authority figures. When you think of the period of the judges, these guys were not kings. They did not have the authority of a king that people would just come to the judge in order to know what was the right thing to do. They would seek out wisdom, and the judge was kind of recognized by everybody as someone that was a wise person you could go to to settle hard cases. But really, during the period of the judges, authority was decentralized. And when God gave the law to the people at Mount Sinai 400 years earlier, he did not set up a king. But instead, the law pointed out that we have one king who is God. God is our lawgiver, God is our judge, God is our, the, our leader in battle. And so throughout the days of Moses, uh, God was the one who led them in battle through the prophet. And God was the one who gave them his law through the prophet. And God was the one who judged his people. And you had this decentralized, although you know Moses was a central figure, but then after he went away, the people were supposed to live underneath God's law, but they failed to do so. Uh, you can read through the period of Judges, and over and over again, the inspired writer describes those 400 years of the Judges as there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king in Israel, 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So either God is your king, or you do what's right in your own eyes, and that creates chaos, because everyone has a different idea of what is right in their own eyes. So, that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 400 years of failing to live under God's law, to self-govern according to God's revelation of his righteousness. And what does Israel do? Let's read it. I'll read it out loud, you guys can follow along. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So, uh, as so often happens, you've got a godly father with ungodly kids, and the father wants his kids to follow in his footsteps and to do what he did, and yet they corrupt it, and so they, they're not going to be judges that the people of Israel look to. They're like, we don't want these guys deciding our cases. They're corrupt. So, what happens? Verse uh, 4. Then all the elders of Israel, notice the decentralized authority, there's elders in every city, in every place, in every tribe. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay, so they ask for a king, and they want to be like all the nations. The other nations have kings. We don't have a king. This is our problem. We need a king. But, notice the verse 5, the thing displeased Samuel. So this wise old man, he's like, eh, I don't know. This doesn't seem good. It displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Good, good, good decision. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So what does God say? He says, okay, the people of Israel have failed utterly to follow me as king. And so uh, get, go ahead and give them their king that they're asking for. Um, they had the best king ever, but they didn't listen to him. They didn't follow his ways. They didn't govern themselves underneath God's law. And so God gives them a central authority. This is the necessity of a central authority for those who can't govern themselves under God. So, let's see what the central authority is going to do, okay? So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain, and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers, and to his servants. He will take your male servants, and female servants, and the best of your young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be... His slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king 
whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So what does the centralized authority do? He takes. Takes, 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 takes. And you become his slaves. You're tax slaves. All right? That's the situation of central government when people cannot govern themselves underneath God's law. Now, for a long time in American history, we had a people who could govern themselves under God's law. And didn't need a centralized authority that was going to rule over the people and take, 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 take. But over time, centralized authority gathers back that power. Everything the centralized authority does, it does in order to gain more power and to be able to take more. That's the way central authorities work. They take and they make you slaves. Now, the answer to this is not to decentralize authority. Did the people of Israel do well with a decentralized authority? No, they did terrible. And so all these commentators out there who don't understand Christianity and who say, you know, we need to limit the centralized government, we need to limit federal power and give power back to the states. Well, yeah, but that's not going to solve the problem. You need people who can govern themselves underneath God's law. That's what you need. And when people can govern themselves underneath God's law, then you're going to have society the way it was meant to be, with freedom without being the slave of the centralized authority, and without being a tax slave. Um, unfortunately, we don't have a people who can govern themselves under God's law. There's a few, uh, but not very many. And so the, the work of the Christian is not primarily to reform the government. Uh, the work of the Christian is to teach people how to govern themselves under God's law. And once people know how to obey Christ from the heart who ties all of life together, then a wise people can institute a good government. But it's not going to happen without a reformation of the heart before the reformation of the government. So, government, human government, centralized authority is a necessary evil for those who cannot govern themselves. And that's what we have, and that's what there's always been, and the great freedoms that we have enjoyed as Americans in the last several hundred years are the exception to the rule. It was only because Christians fled Europe and started a new country here without the centralized authority, without the domination of the, the powers of the monarchies, that we were able to enjoy these freedoms. All right, so I, I get going. I saw I'm, I got to remember to save time for the small groups. So let's do that. Um, I want two groups of guys and maybe one group of ladies, since we just have one uh, adult here for the ladies and we're missing a lot of people. So, so uh, go ahead and get out your study guides. If you don't have them with you, I've got extra copies up here. Not a lot. I've got a few extra